Well, top of the morning to all of you. Good to uh, be with uh, all of you again here. I do uh, want to welcome those of you who were at the Bible study. To uh, uh, Glad you're here and also uh, very, very uh, thankful for the gracious welcome that uh, all of you have been giving me here since I've arrived. I, I really uh, appreciate that very much and it is my pleasure to be here with all of you and I'm very grateful for the invitation and uh, certainly we will see what we can do about once a year. It would be nice to, uh, to get back to down here to uh, visit all of you and annoy you from time to time. <laughs> but uh, it is good to be with uh, all of you. Just wanted to make mention, too, on some of the things. Uh, many of you, uh, I find it, um, uh, let me say it this way, I find it very sometimes surprising to me that many of us in our congregations and audience and so on are unaware of some of the things that we have on the Internet in terms of products that are available for our edification and help in uh, growing and enhancing our relationship with uh, Jesus Christ and God our Father. So let me just take a moment to mention that uh, with all of the products that we have on the Internet, some of you may be aware of them as well. Uh, there's a lot of them there. Just go to CGI.org. Lots of things there for you to peruse and consider and are all designed you know, to really help you in st as study aids as well as uh, compelling information that uh, hopefully will challenge you for uh, developing perspectives in this day and age that we're living in because it's very important. We're going to be talking about that here in a moment that we as Christians do indeed have a perspective on the things that we find ourselves surrounded by because these things that we do find ourselves surrounded by are oftentimes very encroaching very uh, what you could say challenging to the negative to get you off your game to get you off your point and to concede your positions uh, into a more progressive and socialistic fashion. And I think it's very important for all of us to be able to see how we're all thinking in many respects from the Bible, because uh, we certainly don't want to be following men or organizations. We've, we've been through that before, and that's something we don't want uh, certainly to be a party to. But by the same token, uh, certainly organizations do have their part in allowing us to share in information and knowledge that oftentimes can be very helpful for uh, shaping and allowing ourselves deeper insight into certain things because of individuals in their writings and or in their presentations and what have you. So keep in mind you've got the armor of God. Keep in mind biblical news updates and commentary, which is another uh, venue that we use. Uh, the web chats where we get a couple of guys talking about some issue uh, at a chair in kind of a laid back kind of a mode with uh, some bookshelves behind them. Kind of uh, you sitting there, you know, and eavesdropping on the conversation. Oftentimes, uh, I've been finding certain people uh, who do know about those products find that actually the web chats are more interesting than the armor of God simply because of the conversation that uh, generally ensues depending on who uh, is doing it and what we're talking about. So do keep all of those things in mind because uh, we're all uh, doing them and uh, certainly trying to do the best we can to help all of us out in helping us understand what we're surrounded by in this world that we're living in. Because the fact of it is, and I, I, I'm sure I'm speaking to somewhat of an educated audience uh, to a certain degree, we are well aware the United States is under siege. Would you agree with that? Yes. I mean, in more ways than just the weather. <laughs> <laughs> the weather is one thing, uh, certainly, and uh, we are under siege in that respect because there's another hurricane, you know, b behind Irma called Jose. And you got another one over here in the Gulf. I think it's been downrated, though, to a tropical storm, Katy or Caddy or something. Uh, seems like uh, this year's weather situation is really lively time. Uh, but point being that we are under siege in the weather area, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we are under siege socially. And I think as we look out and about and see the things that are going on, I'll tell you what, it is getting to become really kind of the uh, wild time in the OK Corral, if you know what I'm saying, figuratively speaking, with things that are now under question, under siege, uh, things that uh, you would 
you know, considered a few years ago, not even in some cases a few years, just a few months ago, would be undebatable. But again, as usual, somebody finds a reason to debate some what appears to be some non-debatable issue. You would think that some of this stuff would be put to rest and we'd be okay with that. And we're making our adjustments to try to, uh, uh, you know, get along uh, and get and move forward, so to speak. But I'll tell you, you you've got some things that are really very trying. Uh, even myself here coming to you from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and the uh, fact that we, uh, a team very dear to my heart, I grew up as a little guy going to football games with my dad to see the Cleveland Browns back in the day when they used to win games. <laughs> they don't win that many anymore. But uh, here just a, a while back, a few weeks ago, these guys, uh, you know, 12 of them, and they call it taking a knee and uh, bowing, you know, down to uh, uh, protest uh, there and, and to make a statement with respect to their freedom of speech, which is a totally misappropriated issue to begin with. The, uh, the underscoring issue is not freedom of speech when you do that. What's underscoring is disrespect, discourtesy, and inconsideration for the blood, sweat, and tears that was sacrificed in Iwo Jima over in Normandy so that these young men who are multimillionaires can play a boy's game and make that kind of money. So it's not about, it's not about freedom of speech. It's about respect. It's about courtesy. You come into my house, if I have a sign on the door and I ask you to take your shoes off, guess what? You're in my house. You take my shoes off. I would think. Now, I've got it. If you don't take your shoes off, you can wash the floors. That's from my wife, you know. <laughs> but, but I mean, in all due respect, these things are, are certainly uh, things that you would think would be common sense. But it seems like the common sense has gone out the door because the commonality that many of us used to have with each other is no longer. You've got all these groups now, the alt-right, the alt-left, uh, the Antifa, uh, the white supremacists. You've got all of these different types of billionaires, guys like uh, Richard Branson and uh, Bezos, I think uh, head of Amazon. You've got uh, another guy named Carlos Slim, who was voted the richest man in the world, South America. And of course, our, one of our favorite billionaires, Mr. George Soros who funds all of these types of organizations like the uh, Foundation of the Open Society, MoveOn.org, uh, gave just recently $85 million for social activity and progressive movements to Black Lives Matter. He's also uh, part and parcel to... Uh, other types of organizations like using the, multi, the mainstream media, both in print as well as in video products, be it on the internet, via YouTube, whatever. These guys, these multi-billionaires, very progressive in their thinking, taking lessons right out of uh, Saul Alinsky's book of uh, Marxism and Socialism is a fact, brethren. It is a fact. And I want to beg your indulgence just a little bit because I'm going to kind of take you and meander you through some things. So I, I, I beg you to be patient with me as I draw this uh, setting to frame my presentation because I'm saying all this to kind of give us a, a feel and a sense of what we've got facing us today. We have some major moves going on within the country to delegitimize the country. There are people wanting to rewrite our history, regardless of how inadequate, unfair, regardless of some of the injustices that have occurred. Nations that forget their history, nations that forget their history, are oftentimes vulnerable to being re-manipulated into forgetting who they are, as well as run the risk, run the risk of repeating that history as well. So it becomes a, a real, what you could say, challenge for many of us in understanding the fact of how all of these uh, organizations and, of course, some of these uh, movements are indeed influencing the direction of the country. And they are well ensconced. They are well ensconced. They are ensconced and embedded in the educational system of the United States. Many people today are homeschooling their children because they don't want their five-year-old in kindergarten or six-year-old in first grade or seven-year-old in second grade like they're doing in Massachusetts being questioned, are you a boy or a girl? <laughs> no joke. 
A seven-year-old being asked that by an authority, a teacher. I mean, if you were to ask me, and I've said this before, at seven years old, do you like girls, Billy? I'd say, no. (laughs) No, seven years old. What are they good for? Pull their hair, tease them, poke them, you know, tickle them. Oh, maybe a homosexual here. That's what's going on today. People are pulling their kids out of school. We pulled our grandson out of school. We're homeschooling him. We've got a wonderful program in that regard. That's us. I'm just saying, these are the things that we are really facing. And they are changing. Years ago, you would never think of attempting to try to sexualize kids at the ages that we're talking about today. And you wonder, shame on the mothers and fathers. I mean, if my dad saw that I was confused about my gender, he'd say, Billy, look. What are you? Boy. And guess what? I'm a boy. Debate over. Debate over. The problem is the enabling that goes on and on. Transgenderism, brethren, is a mental disorder. And it needs to be handled accordingly. Sad part is, as a counselor, if I would attempt to try to counsel, I carry $2 million of insurance. Why? Because I could get sued for doing that now. That's a legitimate risk we as pastors in the Christian community take on. As a matter of fact, uh, the... um, wife of uh, Ben Faulkner, who we share the Feast of Tabernacles with, she is a psychologist, has her own practice, and she's got to be very careful about what she encourages when dealing with homosexuals or transgenders. This is just one aspect. This is just one aspect. I'm not picking on that. I'm just saying things have changed because where they were considered, that is certain things considered abnormal, If a boy went into a woman's restaurant, I could run the risk of being arrested. Now all I got to say is, I feel like a girl today. And I can get away with it. I can get away with it. Because who's to debate on how I can feel? That's my sovereign right on how I feel today. Now I may feel like a boy tomorrow. They call that fluid, fluid genderism. You know, where I'm one way or the other on any other. This is real stuff. People think this is logical. And sadly, my brethren, we, we, are, we are being confused into a reality that is uh, considered to be normal when in fact it's abnormal. And as we see the element continue to build momentum and gain critical mass and certain laws are conceded to and concessions and compromises are made, we all run the risk of becoming victimized in many cases to either compromise and go with it or to make a stand and make yourself a focus of attention. Millions of dollars are being Uh, donated to candidates and to organizations that are advancing socialistic, progressive, and Marxist programs today. Bear with me. I know I'm talking a little political here, but just bear with me because I'm going to get to where uh, I want to go here in a moment. I'll turn some corners here as we go forward. But I'm trying to illustrate to all of us today that literally there is a siege going on to change the direction of the culture here in the United States. And we as Christians, and don't kid yourself to uh, essentially a similar degree, even traditional Christians who believe in the morality that this Bible talks about, forget the doctrines of holy days and pagan days and so forth and so on, the reality of it is those Christians, any Christian who believes that adultery is wrong, homosexuality is wrong, that a man and a woman should be defining marriage, not two same genders, you know, that abortion is murder, you need to get with the program, all these things. Drunkenness, well, it's okay if you're at a party with more than five people, you know, but if you're not, well, then maybe we can talk about drunkenness not being the right thing to do. The point being, the point being in all of this is that we are seeing things change and the corruption that we see uh, is indeed real. WikiLeaks, I don't care what you think about it, regardless, put that to the side. WikiLeaks, this guy named Snowden, 
And this transgender, now named Chelsea Manning, was a guy, now is Chelsea Manning. Like them or not, I'm not asking you for your opinion on that, but I'm just saying, what they disclosed and revealed are things that the common Joe, six-pack Joe, shouldn't know, but now we know. Now we know Debbie Wasserman Schultz prevented Bernie Sanders from not having any chance of being the Democratic candidate for the Democratic Party. Not that I care. I don't. <laughs> but it illustrates a point. The corruption. The stacked deck. The reality of things that we now find ourselves in that we see corruption up to our eyeballs even in our law enforcement agencies, FBI and the CIA, nefarious activity that the United States of America was involved with in attempting to thwart the election of Israel. Known fact, I'm not making it up. We, the United States government, involved in attempting to try to prevent Benjamin Netanyahu to be, re to be elected as the Prime Minister of Israel. Shame on us! What right do we have to do that? People are indifferent. People are indifferent today. The nation we live in is corrupt. Very, very corrupt. So much so that now there is good reason to believe that there is indeed people in a shadow government that are indeed running the show. How do we know this? Thank you, WikiLeaks. Like it or not, the reality is, of it is that it is what it is. And sadly, we find this very disturbing. To me, in some cases, I'm almost to the point where I'm embarrassed to say I'm an American. I hate to say that. But the reality of it is, what I wanted to share with all of you is to show you a contrast of how far we've drifted. And I said, I'm almost. I'm almost. I'm not. I, I don't want to be that way. I'm just trying to uh, draw a point here on just how far we have drifted. I want to share with you some quotes from some former leaders, our forefathers, the United States of America, from many years ago, that uh, are certainly part and parcel to our history, and share with you from this book, America's God and Country, from a William, William Fetter, uh, who's basically cataloged a lot of these quotations over the years and has indeed uh, uh, illustrated by these quotations just exactly how far we have actually drifted from what we do indeed or what we should be representing. And here on page 5, this quote came from John Adams when he was 21 years old. I just want you to listen to this and where, and where he was in 1756. This is what he said, 21-year-old man, John Adams. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry, to justice and kindness and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia! What a paradise would this region be? He was excited about what he saw and what they were on the brink of possibly doing uh, and certainly considering back uh, in those days. Here uh, in... Um, the same book on page uh, 22, Samuel Adams, a real rabble rouser, named a beer after him, by the way. <laughs> he, uh, he was uh, uh, a real, what you could say, instigator. And he had this uh, newsletter that he had printed back in 1772. It was a communique, a way of communicating to the colonists certain things that he wanted them to, to be aware of and, and certainly uh, things that uh, needed to be uh, uh, made aware to those colonists. And I'm, I'm reading this to give you also an illustration of where their heads were at 
religiously. So listen to what they're saying here. And this again comes from Samuel Adams in 1772 out of one of his The Rights of the Colonist newsletter. He says, The rights of the colonists as Christians, the rights of the colonists as Christians, may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institution of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Imagine that, putting credibility on God's Word and essentially leaning on it for the purpose of, of course, uh, illustrating its um, uh, alleged uh, influence that it should have on the society at the time. He continues on over here on page 23, some four years later in 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was being signed, he states this, a general dissolution of principles and manners uh, will more surely overthrow the liberties of America than the whole force of a common enemy. And that's what we're seeing today. That's what we're seeing today. We're losing, as as, uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin, uh, uh, oh, the um, my mind is a blank. It was a president candidate. Carson. Carson, yeah. Ben Carson stated that in our debate today, in our debates today, we have uh, a problem. And the problem is, is we've lost our sense of civility when we debate. We've lost our sense of civility. We, we get into arguments and we get personal and consequently we lose contact with or connection with the issues that we're debating. And he, this is what uh, Samuel Adams is warning us of uh, back in this particular case in 1776. He says this, while the people are virtuous, Listen to this now. This is, this is interesting. While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But when they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. If virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, they will never be enslaved. They will be that will be, this will be, that is, this will be their great security. Neither the wisest, wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupted. If you lose your manners, if you lose your civility, if you lose your courtesy and considerations to one another, you run the risk then of anarchy. You run the risk of chaos. You run the risk of losing your system and losing your organization and your structure that manages the social system or the culture at heart. And this is what he's warning us for. He goes on here in the same quote. He, therefore, is the truest friend to liberty of his country who tries most to promote its virtue. And this is the virtue he's talking about, by the way. He already stated this. This is the basis of the virtue. It's not a political philosophy. It's not so much the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. What underscores those things is the Word of God. You heard him say that before, that it's for Christians, both New and Old Testament. And he says, and he continues here, and says uh, basically, uh, most to promote this virtue, and who so far as, uh, as his power and influence extend, will not suffer a man to be chosen into any office. (laughs) Let me reread this. And think of the politicians that we have today. Let me slow this down. And you think of the politicians we have today. He, therefore, is the truest friend to the liberty of his country, who tries most to promote its virtue, and who, so far as his power and influence extend, will not suffer a man, that is permit, not permit a man, to be chosen into any office of power and trust who is not a wise and virtuous man. I don't know if you've ever did a a listing of our senators and congressmen and what they have been convicted of over the years. I mean, the list goes on and on. And these guys are leading, and ladies, are leading our country are leading our country. He goes on here and he says, the sum of all is if we would most truly enjoy this gift of heaven, let us become, let us become, he says, he appeals, let us become a virtuous people. Based on what? He already said, the Bible. 
become a virtuous people. Yes, I, I admit we have failed as a culture in so many respects. As hard as we've tried, we have. Admittedly, we have failed in so many respects of that, in that case. But it doesn't dismiss the heart and where we intend to uh, drive and drive from. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, we probably leave a lot to be desired. But then, that's why we've got God's grace in many respects. Here, in some years later, in 1781, Thomas Jefferson says this, and this is what concerns me, and this is where we're going to kind of begin to take a turn here. I wish the gentleman had a patience a little bit. Uh, but at any rate, we, we, we read this in 323. Uh, page 323, God who gave us life gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in minds of the people that these liberties are a gift from God? When we, in other words, when we forget that the liberties we have are a gift from God, we are a nation in trouble. We are a nation in trouble. And so sadly, when some of these young men, these multimillionaires, take a knee like that, so often I, I think of these kinds of quotations and run through my mind about how disrespectful it is and how some have forgotten that what we have didn't come easy, did not come easy. Uh, many, many people are buried in uh, many of the cemeteries like Arlington and even on shores of foreign lands that defended these liberties. And if, in fact, what would have happened in World War II would have been different, we'd all be speaking German probably on the East Coast and Japanese here on the West Coast. Uh, it'd be a lot different today in many, many respects. But he goes on, as I finish this quote from Thomas Jefferson, that they are not to be violated, that is, the, the liberties, these liberties are not to be violated, but with his wrath. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson quoting, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. In other words, he's saying when a people like that begin to lose their bearing and lose their connection to their God-given uh, uh, allowances that come from God, then they are in trouble and are embarking upon the potential judgment of God himself, and that he, God, should be uh, the one who is reserved for the purpose, of course, of um, exercising any kind of uh, action of correction on that nation. Brethren, we're living in a very, very difficult time when pop culture is basically defining now what is right and what is wrong. We're living in a time when, as I said, we're debating things that shouldn't even be debated, but now are being debated and, frankly, in some cases accepted and now being normalized to be acceptable behavior in a society that has basically gone very secular by virtue of these humanistic encroachments that have developed into almost a neo-pagan society in many, in many regards. Much of the tactics of, in our politics of uh, play to pay and, of course, the uh, corruption in politics and business, education, entertainment, even in social and in interpersonal norms, uh, has driven our country into an area now that's all really uncharted waters uh, in many respects. And you and me have been called in this 21st century as Christians to deal with much of this ongoing change, uh, tension, political uh, upheaval. Uh, in some cases, our streets are in chaos and anarchy, and a lot of people are very passionate about their differences of opinion about certain positions and perspectives of this day and age that we live in. And it's important, and, and this is the message I wanted to kind of drive home today, that we guard against it bleeding in to the church. We've got to be aware of the fact that the church really is an oasis away from a lot of the insanity that is growing around us. To be able to have brethren of like mind who believe 
in similar values and principles and afford us to be able to trust you with my children or your children with me is a tremendous blessing to know people like that and to understand that regardless of color, that we're all the same in mind and in heart, spiritually speaking. And that's important, you see, because there shouldn't be any racism in God's church. There is no Greek. There is no Jew. There is no Scythian. My feelings about certain things should not racially impact you nor your things racially impact me because I like you, not because you're black or white or green or red, but because you are a human being, potential God, potential God, and consequently are indeed a Christian. That's important. And in this day and age, we, as Christians, share a very special bond with each other. The Apostle John pointed this bond out over here in 1 John. I'd like to turn there for a moment to illustrate this by virtue of what he was going through back in the first century. The Apostle, at this time, was in fact encouraging the brethren there in his particular area of uh, where he was at. And he was attempting to try to uh, compel them, motivate them to hold the line. There was a lot of things going on in the first century. As I already mentioned in passing, the Gnostics were already uh, making certain uh, inroads into the early New Testament church. They were uh, writing different gospels, very nefarious gospels, spurious gospels, claiming they were written by Paul, claiming they were written by Thomas, claiming they were written by others in the church, and attempting to lie and deceive certain people to think that what was written was indeed true when in fact they weren't. So there was a lot of confusion. The Apostle John here, in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 1, illustrates his passion, because you have to put John in context here. I'm not going to do a Bible study on John, but I do want to put some context here. He was the last guy standing. All his buddies, first generation, are dead. He's the last man standing. He knows the church is under siege. He sees what's coming out of Athens, Alexandria, the thoughts. He understands the influence of Plato and Socrates and all of these guys and how many of these spurious doctrines are being brought in through the Mithra uh, religion of Rome and in addition to the Hellenization of the whole Roman Empire. And a lot of that Hellenization and all of that uh, movement brought in the immortality of the soul, brought in the, the ideas of heaven and hell, brought in the idea of Sunday. And those then that were indeed still holding on to certain apostolic truths were hunted, used as game in, in the, the um, Roman Colosseums. They were essentially jailed their properties confiscated, and later on, through other means by which, as Constantine got his way in 325 A.D., I won't take you through a church history thing, but if you do research it, you'll find the Jesuits were the SS of the Catholic Church. And they garnered a lot of money for the Catholic Church by running people who kept the Sabbath and different what were considered to be Jewish things through the Piedmont Valleys of France and all down through the areas of Europe. And that rich history connects to you and to me. Those are our brothers and sisters who ran and fought back with perhaps rakes and shovels, but they were no match to some of these professionally trained swordsmen in the Jesuit reign or the Jesuit uh, course. But here John says, and look at this, he doesn't even have a salutation. He just jumps in. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which have looked upon in our hands and have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifest and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, And these things write we unto you. Why am I writing this unto you? That your joy, 
that your joy may be fulfilled. In other words, he's writing very passionately here. He doesn't even have a salutation. You know how Paul does in the beginning of all of his epistles? He always says, hey, hi, welcome, you know, you know and he, he has a salutation of uh, invoking uh, friendship and warmth and hailing and so on to everybody in here and I give you my greetings and what have you. No salutation. He just launches in. He's hot to trot. He is anxious. He sees what's encroaching on what is happening in the church. He wants everybody to believe, look, we saw Christ. We watched him walk after he resurrected. He was alive. 500 people saw him. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This guy is promising us things that are just unimaginable. You've got to believe us. We're writing. I'm writing, he says this, so that you can have joy fulfilled. And be assured and encouraged that these things are indeed true. Now, the Gnostics thought they were entitled and were essentially a step ahead of everybody. They looked down on everyone. Gnostics meant knowledge. You know, they had knowledge. And that they had a special anointing. you got to have this background in order to understand what you're going to read here in a minute in chapter 2. Because these Gnostics were very... Sneaky. They were very squirrely, uh, like weasels. You know, uh, they they would uh, like a disease bore in, and then divide and conquer with their heresies and different teachings and different kinds of ideas. And they would do slight shifts and finally, you know, begin to infect a congregation to where essentially, in some cases, uh, good reason to believe that some of those congregations never did survive. Chapter 2, 1 John, verse 18, uh, John says this, Little children, it's the last time, and as you've heard, and he cuts to the chase, the Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, even now, he said, now, 2,000 years ago, now, he says, there are Antichrists among us. Wow. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Some of the Gnostic teachings, if you've ever studied them, go to the point where actually Christ on, on the stake was a hologram. It was an illusion. A spiritual illusion. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Oh, Jesus never died because his immortal soul, when he was being whipped and beat, his immortal soul lifted out of his flesh and he was standing afar watching his flesh be beat up. These are some of the ideas. And some of these things, for instance, Jesus never died, is still with some Christian denominations that do in fact hold, and if I dare say, I think some even Baptists hold the fact Christ never died. He was in Tartaru talking to demons during the three days and three nights. And brethren, if he was in Tartaru, never died, then we don't have a Savior. We're in trouble. That's right. Jesus Christ was dead. Deader than dead. I mean dead. Unplugged. He was blank. He was not doing anything during those three days and three nights. He was depending on the Father to come back and resurrect Him. Your Savior died so that we could live. And He was indeed resurrected three days and three nights later and now sits alive at the right hand of the Father in a different life form. I don't even know if it's the same life form He had before He was human. I, I don't know if He went back and reverted back. I don't know that. The Bible's not really clear, but it doesn't matter. What matters is He's alive as a spirit being and He's at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? We've got a high priest after the order of Melchizedek to appeal to for intervention in our lives when we need help. And that is a great comfort. And not to mention the fact we have access to His grace. It goes on here, though, in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, uh, talking about these antichrists, because they were formerly in the congregations. Drop it down to verse 20 uh, for the sake of time here. He says, but you have an, uh, an unction, and that means an anointing. That's a Greek word. It means an anointing. He's using this because the Gnostics said they had an anointing. John is saying, no, you have an anointing. This congregation that John is talking to is trying to encourage them to recognize the fact because you know, and he's going to get into this in a minute, the truth, you have an anointing. You have an understanding of things that should give you an edge 
to understand what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. And if you do, then you're all right. You're going to be okay. And he says this here as he goes on. He says, uh, but you have an anointing, an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I've not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He's an antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same as denied the Father. Verse 24. Let that therefore abide in you. Think about that. That's what he's saying. Let, think about that. Let that resonate. Don't speed read it. Think about it. He says, let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. What beginning? From the beginning that we have told you, whether it was Paul, whether it was Thomas, whether it was Nathaniel, whether, whether, whoever it was who told you these things. Remember the beginning. Hold on to that, he's saying. Don't let these Gnostics come in. They're trying to penetrate. Watch it. In the latter times, they will come with itchy ears, teach and speak platitudes and soft things so that you get lulled to sleep. Oh, yeah, he's so a good speaker. Oh, yeah, he just makes me warm and fuzzy every time I hear him, you know. But it's important, brethren, that we're mature about these things and that we understand that we can face the hard issues and still be able to get along with ourselves and grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ all at the same time. And what John is saying is, you know how you do that? You leverage the truth. You leverage the truth. Believe it. Don't look for voices. Don't look for omens. Don't look for dreams. I talk to people in God's church who claim they have dreams. And they essentially, in some cases, follow these dreams as omens. Be careful. Be careful. Because we have a time, in the time we're living in, which is a very demonic time. And it is. People are, in some cases, not even rational anymore. And in some cases, hard to talk to. In, in some areas of, uh, of life. God is converting us, brethren. He is converting us in a way that, as John says here, is uh, very important for us to recognize how it is that this truth plays such a big part in our life. Let therefore, verse 24, abide, uh, let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall also continue in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, even eternal life. These things I've written unto you concerning them that seduce you. He's concerned about these people. He's saying, watch out. These guys are no good. Be careful in the world that we're living in. God's church in our case, brethren, we have ourselves, in some cases, very vulnerable. There's a lot out there. A lot out there. Take your time. Be cautious. Watch your mind. Watch what you believe. Study. You have to study on your own in some cases. Look what he says, where he goes with this. He says, Those things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you, but the anointing, he comes back to that, which you have received of him abides in you and you need not any man teach you but as sa as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie and even as it that is the holy spirit has taught you you shall abide in him or it if you'll see that your center uh, middle margin there it should have it and it in the same place because the holy spirit is in you as it's in me we have different gifts. You're sitting here listening to me flap my jaw, and that's fine. And if something can be gotten out of it, that's okay also. But don't believe everything I say without checking. I certainly do the best I can to stay on target. But as pointed out to me, I said, remember uh, Daniel 12, verse 1? Uh, I mentioned it was uh, about uh, in the Bible study, Daniel 12, verse 1. Well, I, I misspoke. It was Daniel 12, verse 2. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a little point, a little nuance, but 
certainly could illustrate on a larger scale something that could be even you know more uh, uh, more disconcerting or more disturbing but it's important that we we do learn these things and and certainly that might stick with you now more so in knowing that it wasn't Daniel 1 it's Daniel 2 and that you'll remember you know because uh, the preacher made a mistake as they would say but the point that what John is saying here is it's very important that we take responsibility for ourselves because we are responsible and accountable for ourselves. And so God is looking. He's looking for a 21st century Christian. Then I'm going to give you a word. I'm just going to give you a word. You can look it up later. But here's what he's looking for, and especially in this day and age, it's needed more than ever before. It's the Christian who is indeed intrepid. Courageous. He is bold, or she. They know where they stand. They're secure in their faith. They do recognize right from wrong and are equipped mentally, intellectually. They don't need to call the minister to defend their position. They get on their own Facebook. They get on their own Twitter. They get on in the circle of debate and in the public square and stand up for, kick back on the things that you know to be wrong. God's looking for a 21st century Christian, one who is considered intrepid, one who is not afraid to face whatever debate we face, because we're facing them. And the more we don't kick back, the more we don't voice our opinions. Guess what? If there's no counterpoint, the point that is mentioned wins. Every time. Am I asking you to be a political activist? No. No. But I am appealing to all of us to be active, to be proactive about your faith. And if indeed something is said that you like, then give us a like on the Internet. If you see a comment being said about something that was perhaps said, that you know that that comment is off the wall. That it's to the left, or it's not right, or it's, it's, it's to the, too much to the right. Get involved. Write a comment. Get a comment. Kick back and say, no, 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 no. He didn't mean that. You're, you're taking it wrong. You know, and do what you got to do. Get the debate going. We have all these social medias now, brethren, that doesn't need the minister to be as active as you might think when, in fact, you have the unction. You have the anointing. We vary in gifts. Oh, yeah, we vary in gifts. But that doesn't make us any less responsible for taking the roles of being the activists that we need to be when the times are right to stand up for what we believe in and what we know to be true. In John chapter 17, in John chapter 17, the Gospel of John, I'm going to stick with John. He had a lot to say about this truth and about us being confident with regard to having the truth and how we should be as a result of that truth in our life. Because we need to recognize that we can be a people that are not intimidated, that are not in any way, shape, or form willing to compromise in certain positions. He says here in verse 14 of John chapter 17, the real Lord's Prayer, by the way, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And essentially he's talking this portion of his prayer to the Father about the apostles and his disciples. But it certainly does merit our attention because by extension there's Uh, you can make the case that it overlays on all of us. He says here in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Are we really not of the world? That's something for all of us to think. What is it we watch? What is it we read? What's the music we're listening to? What do the words and the lyrics sound like? I can tell you there's some music that I hear that, wow, I wonder why are we listening to that, you know. There are some shows uh, on television that, um, you know, I just don't see the sense in watching in some respects. It's not always easy, though, because your friends listen to it. 
and for acceptance, the pressure's on. So how do you deal with that? Well, sometimes it can be difficult. Sometimes it can be very, very challenging and hard. Sometimes maybe even a relationship might go on the rocks as a result of you taking a stand on something. Are you willing to do that? I know some years ago when I was called into God's church, I knew that if I didn't get away from the group that I was hanging out with, I would not be able to cut the tether. And I had to make a choice. I had to change my friends. I had to leave and depart and abandon that group that I used to hang out with because it was too counterproductive for where I wanted to go and where I believed God was leading me. And sometimes those things are just manifestations along our journey that help us to understand how God's Spirit is leading us and working with us. Because guess what? What are we talking about here? We're talking about conversion. We're talking about being converted and living our conversion and the lifestyle that represents Christ above reproach in everything that we do, everything that we think, and everything that we say. He says here in verse 15, I pray not that you should just take them out of the world. I pray that you don't take them out of the world. I've got to stay in the world. That means I've got to intermix. I've got to go to work. I've got to work down in the steel mills. I've got to, I've got to be on whatever I'm doing. You know, I've got to interact, intermingle. I've got to rub shoulders with things that I know are counterintuitive to what I'm you know, going for and what I'm, I'm driving at in my life. And it's, it's tough. It's a burden. It, it weighs me down sometimes. And, and as a result, causes me not to make the kind of progress I would like. But nevertheless, that's the prayer. I pray that you should not take them out of the world verse 15, but that you should keep them from the evil. In other words, we should be big enough, strong enough, secure enough to be able to resist the pulls so that we don't make the concessions and we don't concede our sovereignty that represents God in our lives. That's what he's saying here. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world sanctify them, that is, separate them, through your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. And for their sake I separate or sanctify myself, that they also might be separated or sanctified through the truth. And what is the truth? That Christ is Messiah. Christ is King of Kings. Christ is Lord of Lords. And it is Christ who's our model. And therefore, that requires commitment, dedication, and all of what we can possibly conjure up in ourselves to compel ourselves to properly represent the living Christ in us via the Holy Spirit. That's the, what you could say, immense supernatural manifestation we're all involved with, for lack of a better term. Because it is supernatural. Christ in you. Christ in you. Via the Holy Spirit. Taking on a personality that only can be taken on by you because it's your personality. You can't take my personality because I'm me and you're you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and so we stand sovereign from one another, yet nevertheless equal in our potential to express Christ. And it becomes our responsibility to know that truth so that we can leverage that truth into manifested behaviors that will bring forth light into the situation and allow people to see what really God's truth is all about. Because you see, the world is a very dark place and getting darker as we go forward. And it needs light. And that light, brethren, basically needs to come from us. He says here, Neither pray I for these alone, that is his disciples, verse 20, he shifts here, verse 20, John 17, he shifts now to the church. He says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. That's you and me. That's you and me. He's now praying for those down the line who will believe the word of the disciples or apostles. That's us. 
And everything that was said before applies to us too. Because he proceeds here and he says, That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have indeed loved me. You know, brethren, these hurricanes that are coming on us, sieging the United States of America in its underbelly, is a very interesting metaphor, if you will. Because there is an underpinning lesson that all of us, I think, can take point on, to take note of, with regards to what people in Houston, southwestern Louisiana, and of course now throughout the Caribbean, and futuristically what's going to happen on the west side of Florida, what they're going through. You know what one of those things are? Very important thing to keep in mind that the material that we collect is not really worth the merit that it is or the value we place on it sometimes. It's really important that we recognize what's really important. And what's really important is your spiritual condition. What's really tantamount and exceeds all and everything that you have is your salvation and your relationship with God the Father. And a lot of the lessons that are learned in losses, a lot of the lessons that are learned in losses, oftentimes drive home the best lessons we can learn. You learn through losses, or at least you should. Sometimes it's not easy, but there is certainly uh, a lot of merit to uh, appreciate in the fact of the losses that we experience in our lives, assuming, of course, we are indeed finding the lessons that those losses occur in. We're heading the United States of America, and I said all that I said in the beginning, to illustrate the fact into a major storm, a social storm that's going to get worse and worse. Thomas Jefferson mentioned it all, that only God has truly the right to exercise the correction and disrupt the culture in the way that it needs to be disrupted in order to change its course. I don't know whether or not many of you in this room adopt the connection of the United States of America and Great Britain being in any way, shape, or form, culturally speaking, culturally speaking, with the lost ten tribes of Israel. But frankly, I don't care. What I do care about is that we all understand this nation was not established on the God of Muhammad. Agreed? We're not Muslim. We're not a Muslim nation, regardless of what president may say. We are not, we are not in any way, shape, or form a Hindu nation. I think it's clear, and I would strongly recommend that after 700 plus pages of reading all of these quotes from every Tom, Dick, and Harry that had anything to do with the establishment of this country, whether he was uh, an attorney general or a Supreme Court justice or the head of the treasury or a president or a vice president, all of these quotes are uh, categorized in this book of over 700 pages called America's God and Country by William J. Federer. After you read this, there won't be any doubt in your mind that the United States of America, regardless of how short it fell, the intent was, <laughs> the intent was to build the nation on the Old and New Testament. As a matter of fact, there are today even state, state um, constitutions, whether it be Massachusetts, Vermont, Connecticut, a different state, even New York City, where it says you cannot send a man to represent people, your people in your district into Washington, D.C., unless they're believers of the Old and New Testament and Jesus Christ. They're just not enforced. They're not enforced anymore. If you didn't believe in the Old and New Testament and Jesus Christ, you could not go to Washington to represent your people. And 
When you did go, guess what? You weren't to make it a career. <laughs> you were to go a year or two and then come back and take care of your farm because your neighbors were taking care of your farm, by the way, while you were gone. It was a service. You didn't make $185,000 a year and make it a career with health care and so forth and so on, you know, and all the things and all the, all the things that go along with it. But point well taken in this particular case is that we've gone a long way and consequently things are indeed, without a doubt, illustrating the fact, if you read that book, that we are accountable to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to Thomas Jefferson's point, that day of judgment or that day of retribution will be reserved unto God. In Deuteronomy 28, I'm not going to go there, but I will just reference it. Take some time and read that, because it is a very, very sobering chapter, along with Leviticus 26, that affords you some insight on what happened to Israel, another nation, accountable to God, and because they didn't do what they were supposed to do, were taken out. We're heading... Revelation 17. That's where the world's going. Revelation 17. What is Revelation 17? I didn't ever think I'd say this, but I'll say it. A one world order. It's a one world order. It is a socialistic coalition of ten kings who pull their power together with a guy, the beast, and his cohort, the false prophet. And they, for all intents and purposes, run the world, according to Daniel chapter 7. You can read about the downfall and the actual degree of benefactor it achieved to the world in Revelation 18. Between the lines, you can read how and what it achieved by virtue of reading the record of its demise. But if you read between the lines, you'll see just how impacting, how affecting that machine the beast, this ten-kinged ruled by a dictator with a false prophet became, to the point where he even marked his constituents so that if you wanted to have a job or work within that system, you had to have this mark, and of which, by the way, God says, don't receive it. Take the consequences. Don't receive it. Are we that generation? Probably not. But there are people today that believe the United States of America is that beast. Amazing. And do you know why they think that? Because they don't understand who the United States is. It's coming. It's a big hurricane. Will it come from North Korea? Will it come from Russia? Will it come from China? But there is something that is stopping the world from socializing. You know what it is? No, he wants to socialize it. It's the United States of America and its nationalistic approach toward and capitalistic outlook toward, which is the antithesis to what this beast wants. It's coming, brother. Sooner or later, the United States of America, according to Daniel, 11, the king of the north and the king of the south. You can put all these things together. America's not even there. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 13. The United States is not listed there. That's not a description of the United States. It's a description of a Babylonian, Roman, med medio empire that is located over there in the footprint of ancient Rome. And guess what? The European Union is not it yet. Will the board have to be cleared in order for that beast to rise, such as what happened with Germany and the Nazi party out of World War I, when out of the rubble of World War I came World War II? Are we in a similar area of the 1930s? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this, the United States of America, as long as it remains a populist, nationalistic, capitalist nation, it will be in the way of the socialization and the progressive plans that many of the Marxists have in the development of what that Bible calls the beast in the end day. So, buckle up, 
Be the 21st 21st century Christian you need to be. And it is a person who is intrepid, a person who is not compromised, not intimidated, doesn't get bothered by the evil that we find ourselves surrounded by, and frankly isn't bothered. I mean, you could be emotionally bothered, I suppose, but not personally uh, bothered in, in one respect or another about all of the corruption we see, because we know ultimately, what's the Feast of Tabernacles represent? The kingdom of God is coming. I don't mean to minimize it. I don't want to oversimplify it. But God is bringing a kingdom to this planet that is going to superimpose His will on mankind through Jesus Christ. Christ is going to land on that Mount of Olives. He is going to set up world-ruling government in Jerusalem and take down everything and anything that misrepresents what He and the Father intends for you and I and the rest of mankind to understand He is. There won't be any more Trinitarian doctrines. (laughs) There won't be any more Christmas and Easter celebrations. There won't be any more of the kind of neo-pagan, humanistic, secular things that we find ourselves now contending with. What there will be is a system that was originally conceived in the head and the mind of a guy named John Adams. A utopia. A utopia where everybody lives by this word both Old and New Testament and respect for women and men, husband and wife, marriage defined as a heterosexual relationship. There won't be no more heterophobia. You know, like homophobia? Bad joke, I know. (laughs) But there won't be any more heterophobia in this world. We will embrace these uh, gender problems that we have. We will respect life And God will be glorified in that kingdom. Brethren, pray that that day comes soon. Pray that it comes soon. And pray that he will give you strength to be secure in this faith. And hopefully, by keeping that Bible study content uh, content in your mind about that promise you have coming of immortality and a change of species, will help you to be compelled to hold the line and keep the faith.